0: Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's Inner West, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. You might like to keep that passage open if you've got a Bible or a device. Matthew chapter 22. We're in a teaching series, working through Matthew's gospel, started in chapter 21, uh, having worked on it in bits over the last few years, and we're going through chapter 24, this time as in the lead up to Easter, and this is all taking place in Jesus' last week in Jerusalem before He's strung up to die on a Roman cross. He entered the city. Uh, about a week before his death, and we've moved a chapter further forward and only about two days forward in the narrative, because everything's just slowed right down. Uh, it's election season again here in New South Wales, less than a month away from the New South Wales state election, and I don't know if you're following with interest or trying to bury your head in the sand, I feel like you kind of have to end up taking one of either of those options, it's, I mean, maybe you're in between. As a side point, if, um, if you uh, would be interested, St. Oswald's is gonna be a polling center on the 25th of March, um, and we are hoping to put on an election day barbecue at Democracy Sausage to raise money for a good cause, I think international justice mission, and also to raise awareness of St. Oswald's in our community, and Hannah Winch would love to talk to you if you are interested in that. Now, every time an election comes around, it raises these questions about how Christians should engage with politics. We might not articulate the question, but if anything, we're feeling it more because as the culture becomes increasingly secular and shares less of the values of Christianity, the issue becomes more pressing. How do followers of Jesus relate to political agendas with which they disagree? Are there issues or questions that are so important that they trump all other concerns? How important is it to safeguard the rights and freedoms of Christians, especially when it comes to, say, hiring practices or independent schools? Of course, here in Australia, the questions of the relationship between religion and politics are far more muted than they are in places like the US. Just one little detail of that, in 2019, The then editor of Christianity Today magazine, the the largest and most influential Christian publication in the United States, wrote an editorial calling for President Donald Trump to be removed from office. In uh, editor Mark Galley's view, the evangelical movement that had supported Trump and helped him to secure the presidency could no longer point to his appointment of conservative justices, his defense of religious liberty, or whose economic record as positive outcomes that justified their unflinching support. He wrote, to use an old cliche, it's time to call a spade a spade, and to say that no matter how many hands we win in this political poker game, we are playing with a stacked deck of gross immorality and ethical incompetence. He cited the damage that supporting Trump was doing for the reputation of the church and the gospel, not only in the U.S., but around the globe. Now, the editorial created a storm. Some Christian leaders cheered Christianity Today for planting a flag, for drawing a line in the sand as an evangelical and conservative on moral issues publication. While others ridiculed the magazine, they accused it of being woke and called it out of touch with Christian voters, so out of touch that it may as well be retitled Christianity yesterday. It's not, yeah, all right. Come back to us here in Sydney, Australia. We're not as politically divided as the church in the US, at least not publicly, but in an age of political polarization, we're not immune to the temptation of hitching our cart to the leader or party or movement that we think will be the solution to our problems. And we're not immune to letting our politics shape our faith. And Matthew 22 speaks into all of this because in our passage today, the question behind the question Jesus is asked by these Pharisees and the Herodians is, what's your politics, Jesus? Where do you stand? What's your political persuasion. And seeing how he answers this is key to understanding what it means for us too. And so three points as we work our way through these verses. Number one, the revolutionary question. Number two, the revolutionary answer. And number three, the revolution of the revolution. Revolutionary question, revolutionary answer, revolution of revolutions. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15 says this, then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, "'Teacher, we know that you are sincere "'and teach the way of God in accordance with truth "'and show deference to no one, "'for you do not regard people with partiality.'" How's that for buttering up? They're saying, "'We know that you're the kind of person "'who won't kowtow to anybody.'" You don't care what anyone thinks of you, not the Romans, not the Jewish authorities, you just care about the truth. So go on, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? I picked an explosive issue, taxes, we pay lots of taxes but mostly we're not aware of it until tax time because they're hidden from us, I'm taxed on my paycheck but that money's in the government's account before I even see it. I'm taxed on my purchases, but unless I read the receipt, I never see the 10% baked into the price. And none of us especially want to pay taxes, and yet on the whole, I think we can see the benefit of paying them, what it brings. But Jesus isn't actually answering just a general question about taxation. It can seem like that, but it's a more specific issue, it's it's not clear in our translations, but the tax that they're asking about was called the head tax, or the census tax. And it was a tax on all adult, male and female, non-Roman subjects of the empire. If you're a Roman citizen, you didn't have to pay it, but if you happen to be someone that Rome had conquered, then you had the privilege of paying this tax. And in effect, it was just a tax for the privilege of being a subject to Caesar. It wasn't a huge tax, it was just a day's wages for a labourer. But the Jews hated it. They hated it because they didn't want to be under his imperial rule. They hadn't chosen to be under the foot of Rome. In fact, around 25 years before this moment where Jesus has been questioned, When the head tax was first introduced, it led to an insurrection. Judas the Galilean, he led the revolt and uh, he gathered a band of rebels and he proclaimed that God's people should not have any king over them but God. He was proclaiming, in effect, the kingdom of God and called on the Jewish people not to pay the tax, to refuse the emperor's rule by refusing to give him his money. And unsurprisingly, after causing a little bit of damage and an uprising in the region, he was caught and executed on a Roman cross. Now, can you start to see where all this is going? From the very first day of his ministry, Jesus Christ has been proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's built his whole ministry on the kingdom of God, telling people that it was at hand, and now he's come into Jerusalem. He rode on the back of a donkey to shouts of Hosanna to the son of the great King David. And he's gone into the temple, and he's acted like he owns the place. It's all messianic, kingly stuff. And now he's being asked about the head tax, and what they're asking him underneath the surface is, are you a revolutionary, Jesus? And you can see why it's such a trap, because if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, he's effectively calling for an armed revolt. Word would quickly get back to the authorities and Jesus would be crushed. And if Jesus says, pay the tax, then it would invalidate his claims to be bringing the kingdom of God. And you have to just sit there for a moment to understand that, because... I think most of us assume, why would it be a problem? Just pay Caesar's tax, the kingdom of God's over here in a spiritual realm and the kingdom of Caesar's over here and those two things don't interfere at all. But, but the kingdom of God was not just about spiritual inner life. We tend to internalize it and make it private and yet the kingdom of God was when God was going to come to reign reign not just in my heart, but when he was going to come to reign and his kingdom would deal with injustice. It would deal with poverty. It would deal with suffering and oppression. And that was what the Jewish people were waiting for. And so if Jesus says to them, simply pay the tax, it doesn't just make him unpopular with the crowds, it makes him a phony messiah. He's in a bind, a trap, a corner. It's a revolutionary question. Are you a revolutionary, Jesus, bringing the kingdom of God or not? And what Jesus does in this moment is nothing short of astounding. He gives a revolutionary answer, but not the answer that they might have expected. See, they want him to come down on one side or the other. Should we pay the tax or not? Yes or no, tell us where you stand, Jesus. And Jesus gives an answer that is so insightful and profound that in verse 22 we read, they were amazed. But here's the thing, he refuses to give a simple yes or no. And for him, it's not just a clever political dodge to get out of a tight spot in a media appearance. No, Jesus refuses their categories because his kingdom refuses their categories. We'll get to that in a moment, but first, let's just unpack his answer. He says there, verse 18, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought to him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this, and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. And then he said to them, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. Now, the denarius was a Roman coin. And because it was a Roman coin, it had Caesar's image on it. You can see uh, one of them here. This is Tiberius Caesar, who was the Caesar at the time, the emperor. And the image was a subtle way of reminding the people that even their money belonged to the emperor. It's got his face on it. It was minted from His treasury and even if you possessed it, it, He literally owned the wealth that had created it in the first place. And so, Jesus asks, whose image is on the coin? And that word, image, is no accident, it's the word from which we get icon and it's the word that gets used in the Bible to describe how humanity is made in the image of God, And so when Jesus says, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, he's inviting us to think, what has God's image stamped upon it? What has his impression that demonstrates that it belongs to him? And the answer is, we do. In fact, even Caesar has God's image stamped upon him. And what this means is you can give to Caesar your silver coins, but you give to God your whole life. That's the revolutionary answer. It's revolutionary because it transforms the way you relate to political authority. Yes, we pay our taxes, we do our civic duty, but we do it in a way that makes it part of a greater story, part of honouring God. It's not apart from our loving Him. We love God by paying taxes. It's not the only way that we love him, but it's a small way because our whole lives are dedicated to him. Caesar still gets the same amount of money, but the act of paying our taxes is radically transformed. We don't do it for Caesar, we do it for God. But there's a second way that this answer from uh, Jesus is revolutionary. Let's get that picture back on the screen. See, Jesus also asks whose title is on it. And the coin you'll see around the side of it has some writing in Latin. And so let me translate that for you, it's also shorthand. It says, Tiberius Caesar, this is the one on your left, son of the god Augustus. And then on the reverse of the coin, it says Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. And so here's a coin that on one side proclaims Caesar son of God son of the god Augustus, and on the other side, it proclaims him high priest. The Jews hated paying the tax not only because it seemed to be submitting to an overlordship they never wanted, they hated it because the very coin they needed to pay it in was an idolatrous coin. It proclaimed Caesar as the son of his father who had taken his place among the gods. He called him a high priest of the gods. And the Jewish people knew that there was no God but Yahweh. And so when Jesus says, give to God what is God's, He's not only transforming our relationship to political authority, He's also relativizing our relationship to it. Now listen to how one Australian author, Christopher Watkin, puts it in a new book of his called Biblical Critical Theory. He says, my commitment to this world and its authorities cannot be ultimate. This is a radical proposal in a culture in which Rome very explicitly absolutized its claim on the loyalty of its subjects. According to Jesus, however, Caesar never owns me. He rightly can demand my taxes, but he has no right or authority to my very self, for I am in God's image, and because he has redeemed me from slavery to sin to belong to him." And here's the point, in a world where every political authority of every kingdom and empire claimed it was the choice of the gods, Jesus says that you can never give them your full allegiance, you can never give them your worship. You have to resist their idolatrous claims to be worshipped or completely served, because only God is worthy of your wholehearted devotion and trust. In fact, it's even possible, and this is a little bit more subtle, that A little bit of resistance is baked into the way that Jesus says it. The the Pharisees and the Herodians, they ask him, should we give to Caesar, one word, and then he responds and says, it says in our versions, give, but more literally, it's give back or even pay back to Caesar, what is Caesar's. And some scholars like um, N.T. Wright have made a pretty good case that in the context of his day, Jesus may have been heard in effect saying, well then, you better pay back Caesar what he deserves. Not just taxes, but a little bit of resistance as well. Listen to how Wright paraphrases it, or phrases it. He says, had he told them to revolt? Had he told them to pay the tax? He had done neither. He had done both. Nobody could deny that the saying was revolutionary, but nor could anyone say that Jesus had forbidden payment of the tax. Jesus the Galilean envisaged a different sort of revolution from that of Judas the Galilean. Jesus Christ was advocating neither acceptance of the system nor straightforward political revolt. See, what Jesus is saying is I am a revolutionary but I'm not bringing the kind of revolution that you've ever seen before. My kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. And so, point three, the revolution of revolutions. If Jesus has come to bring a revolution, if he's come to bring the kingdom of God, but it's not like the kingdoms of the earth, then what kind of kingdom will it be? It will be a completely different kingdom. You see this, I think, in the fact that Jesus has to ask for a coin, Did you notice that? He doesn't even have a coin in his pocket to answer their question. They do. For all their talk of purity and resistance to Rome, they tarnish their hands with idolatrous currency and that's part of what Jesus is saying. He's saying you are trying to defeat Caesar with Caesar's weapons. You think that you can bring about the kingdom of God using the same values and principles of the kingdoms of this world, and so you try to acquire power and wealth and status and influence because you think that by having them, you'll be able to affect kingdom of God change, but you're playing with the wrong weapons. You're no different from Caesar, and that's why he calls them hypocrites, and the politics of this world always actually operates the same way, whether it's on the left or the right, progressive or conservative, i got my hands backwards in, the right or the left, progressive, because, pro- yeah. Every politician says, if you elect me to power, I'll make change. I'll be able to do what I've promised to do, and even in a revolution, it's just changing the places and rearranging the furniture. It's people who say, We've been excluded, we've been oppressed, we want power, we want recognition. But he's Jesus, and he's claiming to be the king of God's kingdom, and he doesn't have a coin in his pocket. And in a few days' time, he will be stripped of everything, including the clothes on his back. He'll be strung up on a Roman cross to die, and that will be the moment, the Gospels say, of his coronation. The climactic achievement of most politicians' careers is when they're elected, but the climactic achievement of Jesus' kingship is when he's crucified. Do you see how different he is as a king? Jesus says, I'm bringing a completely different concept of kingship, and that's why there needs to be a completely different concept of revolution. One king has all the coins. Caesar had his face stamped on every Roman denarius. The other king tells his disciples that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. See, Jesus doesn't accumulate power or wealth or status. He's constantly giving those things away. Because the thing that will define his kingdom is love. Love is the paradoxical power that drives the kingdom of God, it's the currency of the kingdom. The way to become great is to become a servant. The way to become rich is to give it all away. The way up is the way down. Love is a completely different operating system to the kingdoms of this world. And when you join Jesus' kingdom, when you let Him love you and serve you and save you, you're empowered to live this life of love too. You're transferred into His kingdom Because when you've been loved like this by Jesus, you don't need everything else to go your way. You don't need to scramble for power or status or recognition. You don't put your hope in politics to save us or in the kingdoms of this world to answer our deepest needs. There's a temptation sometimes to think that our solution to our problems comes from one, the one occupying the seat of prime minister or premier. But Jesus separates the kingdoms of Caesar and God, not because they're equal. No, God, God's kingdom is an all-consuming and final kingdom. He separates them because he wants us to remember that our hope for the future is in God and not in our governments. And that's just one little practical teaching outcome of appreciating what Jesus teachers here, our hope is in Caesar or the Prime Minister in his parliament, our hope is in God. Let me highlight another one. First, being a follower of Jesus doesn't commit you to a political position. Uh, Jesus doesn't come down easy on the yes or the no. He won't be satisfied with simple answers and neither should we be. But being a follower of Jesus will challenge every political ideology. If you're a follower of Jesus, the more that you follow Jesus, the more that you'll find yourself struggling to align yourself wholeheartedly with any political movement or organization or party. Each have their good and their bad. Even a party with Christian values cannot bring the kingdom of God. And so Christians are unusually open to those who think differently than them because they recognize that the problem isn't some other party or political persuasion. The problem is sin, and sin infects everything in creation, including those we love to support. And so we don't demonize those who think differently to us. They too are made in the image of God. We don't break fellowship with other Christians who hold different political convictions, The gospel humbles you because it reminds you that the enemy isn't somewhere over there. The enemy is sin, and sin resides in every human heart, including our own. And so to be a Christian is to be able to partner with people who think differently to you, to be able to hold civil discussions with people who think differently to you, to find common cause when there's injustice to be addressed or good to be affirmed. And at the same time, being a follower of Jesus will make you unusually closed. Unusually open on the one hand, willing to work with anybody and willing to realize that the problem isn't just another movement or political view. And yet at the same time, unusually closed because you'll let God be the one who determines what's right and wrong, good and evil. You'll look to God's character and his word and not make your mind up simply because the culture around you is shifting. Which is why Martin Luther King said that the church should be the conscience of the state. Reminding it of what it means to dignify people who are made in the image of God. And because you know that the kingdom of God will not be wrought with the weapons of Caesar, you will give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but you'll give to God what's God's. Your loyalty, your devotion, You'll give yourself to the kingdom, to the task of loving others and loving God. And so be free to do real good in the lives of others around you, including by the way that you engage and think about politics. Let's pray. Father, we look at Jesus who has incredible Capacity to bring truth into the confusion. And in a world where we often feel confused, and maybe increasingly so, we pray that you would give us clarity and humility. That you would make us be the kind of people who give ourselves wholly to you, not instead of being good citizens, not instead of being involved in the world in which we find ourselves, but because of love for you, that we love the world and seek to serve and seek to contribute and seek to bless. And please strengthen us for this, both as a church but also as individuals in whatever space that you have called us, whatever relationships you have placed us in, with whatever people it is that you have called us to love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.